I mean, I think the other problem is that sort of in our culture, we talk around death a lot. We don't, we don't, you know, we don't say the word. We don't um, talk about, well, what are your dying plans or your dying plans? So we talk around it a lot. And I think that happens for, for families who are confronting it as well. There's a lot of talking around it. Um, you know, like, like the whole question, what do you want to do? What do you mean? What do you want to do? There is no, what you want to do. You're dying. Um, so, so, so I, and I think, people are probably not as honest with, with each other and with themselves as they, as they could be. And that that leads to um, people struggling with, with sort of what to, what next steps to take and where do we go from here? I'm Dr. Regina Kemp. I'm a board certified clinical psychologist and I specialize with older adults and families. I created the Psychology of Aging podcast to include older adults in conversations about mental health and wellness. And here's why this is important. When we're all a little more informed about mental health for older adults, we reduce suffering and improve quality of life. And who doesn't want that? So join me. It's simple. All you have to do is listen, be willing to learn, and then share what you learn with others so that they can be included in this conversation too. All right, let's get started. Did you know that by 2034, in less than 15 years, there will be more adults, 65 and older, than children under the age of 18? 20% of these older adults will have a mental health concern. And here's the thing, mental health concerns are highly treatable in older adults. There is a common misconception that depression is a normal part of aging. In fact, depression is not a normal part of aging. Mental health providers need to be skilled and thoughtful around the mental health needs of older adults, and I offer training programs that address just that. There are three main training programs that I offer. One is on mental health care of older adults. It's great for mental health agencies or mental health providers. The next is on sexual health and aging, but not just any sexual health. It's on sexual health in the context of dementia disorders. And what happens in the context of dementia disorders when the person may have diminished capacity to make a decision around sexual interactions? That's great for senior care communities. And finally, on equity and inclusion in senior care. And this is great for mental health or senior care communities. If you'd like to learn more about my training programs, head on over to my website. That's www.dr for Dr. Regina Kep, K-O-E-P-P.com. I'll see you there. And I hope that you check out some of the training opportunities. Last week, I had a very special conversation with Patty Webster from the Conversation Project, and we talked about how to start end-of-life conversations. I'm continuing the conversation about end-of-life care today with Dr. Lauren Markowitz. Dr. Lauren Markowitz has been a palliative care physician at the Atlanta VA Healthcare System for the past five years. She's currently the physician program lead for palliative care. Site Director for the Emory University School of Medicine Hospice and Palliative Medicine Fellowship and Adjunct Assistant Professor in the Division of Palliative Care, Department of Family and Preventive Medicine at Emory University School of Medicine. 
She also serves as a physician in the Georgia Army National Guard. In this interview with Dr. Markowitz, we talk about end-of-life care, we talk about what it's like for the person at the end of their life, and also what it's like for families. I hope that you listen to this very important episode because this is one experience in life we will all go through. It's universal. And while it might be scary, I want you to know you're not alone. So join me and Dr. Markowitz in this very important conversation. Let's get started. Can you start by sharing a little bit about what drew you to end-of-life care? Yeah, um, I think I think that answer is uh, so. There's many facets to it, you know, and um, and if you ask me today, the the things I might share might be different than if you ask me, you know, tomorrow or or a week from now. Um, I think the biggest biggest thing that drew me to end of life care was um, the idea that I wanted to be with people in their most vulnerable periods. That I just sort of wanted to accompany them through their most most vulnerable periods. When I was in medical school, the the you know as a as a medical student, you really um, are not able to be as helpful as you want to be because you don't really know what you're doing, and you're but you're sort of there. Um, and as a medical student, what I found was the times that I felt most empowered and most helpful to people were the times when I, when I would just sort of chat with them. Um, I remember this guy who was going into surgery and he was really nervous about going into surgery and just, just sort of sitting there talking with him about it. Now that the anesthesiologist gave him drugs, which was good. And I was like, Oh, that I could, I could be an anesthesiologist because this is a vulnerable period. Right. Um, but, but sort of, the more that I thought about it, the more that I thought, well, what, what is, what is literally the most vulnerable period of anyone's life? And that's the end of it. And, and when they're facing death. And so, um, that, that was probably the biggest thing that, that drew me to it. Mm -hmm. So there's something about the vulnerability that really touches you. Yeah. I mean, I think it's all (laughs) so, let's see if I can make this story relate. Uh, so I was on the, I was, I, I have my, I have a dog that I love very much and, and took my dog to the beach. And so my dog and I are on the beach for a, for like an evening, evening slash nighttime walk. And it, and it was really dark and stormy. This is like April at the beach. <clears throat> so really dark and stormy and there's no moon outside, no stars or anything cloudy. The, and the, the waves are going crazy and we're, we're alone out on the beach. So I've got my dog next to me and, and I'm looking at it, the ocean and I was like, God, it's really scary. It's, you know, it's this very large, expansive, scary, you know, stuff out there. And I looked down at my dog and my dog looked up at me and I was like, God, I'm so glad my dog is here. And I just felt this incredible warmth. And like, and I, I was just so glad that the dog was there with me. Yeah. I think, Hopefully she was glad that I was there as well. Mm. But, but that, I think like, that's all, that's basically all we can do for each other. Um, Mm. We can just be there with each other during these scary periods and in those spaces where, where people feel, how am I going to confront this alone? How am I going to do this alone? 
well, you don't have to be alone. Nobody's, nobody's alone. We all have, we all have people around us. And so that's, that's really, I think what it's, what it's about. Wow. I mean, that is a powerful analogy of the storm and the darkness and not knowing just kind of this, Mm -hmm. the vast expanse and then Mm -hmm. a brewing storm and looking to your dog and your dog is giving comfort and yeah. Yeah. What a right. Just the presence of just her presence, this thing that I love, this thing, you know, it's not like I know what she's thinking. It's not like she knows, you know, but, but yeah, just to have that um, presence with me was, was um, really calming, really great. Oh, and that inspired you to be that presence for others. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Wow. Are there um, certain end of life experiences that stand out to you in your career as an end of life physician? Yeah. How much time do you have? <laughs> Give me some. <laughs> I'll take your time. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, there are there are myriad uh, experiences that that stand out to me. I, I sort of um, get to be with people in this end of life period, and then those the things that they tell me and the, and the things that I witness, right. Become my story. So in many ways, mm-hmm. their stories, um, to some extent become, become my stories. Um, and I think carrying them forward is part of, you know, part of, um, I don't know, part of the work as well, but, um, the story. So my favorite end of life story, <clears throat> the one that sticks with me probably the most is that, um, there was a there was this gentleman who we cared for. I work at the VA, so there was a gentleman that we had cared for um, for a long time at the VA, and and we at some point we'll talk I think a little bit more about what palliative care is and sort of what we what we provide for people. But a lot of times we're with folks for um, for their whole sort of disease process or for a long period of their disease process. So we had cared for this gentleman for um, a long time, and he was a Vietnam veteran and was was so he was very afraid of dying and what he was afraid of specifically was um that was that he would go to hell because he felt like he had done some things in vietnam that he was not proud of um he didn't never wanted to talk about those things and so and so he really his fear of dying was really about a fear of um uh being being punished and 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 not not sort of experiencing love or anything like that and so, so he, um, so I was caring for him in the hospital. He ended up, he ended up dying in the hospital. And sometimes what happens is when people, so there's a lot of, a lot of strange things that happen when people die. It doesn't mean that they're, that, that, that always happens, but there's often a lot of sort of strange things that go on. And one of the strange things that can happen to people is that they can have, like a, what we call sort of a lucid moment. So they'll, they'll look like they're dying and, and are sort of asleep and sort of out of it. And then they might sort of come back and be, and be able to converse and be awake and be with people and then kind of go back to this sort of out of it dying period. So he was on, on my unit, started to look very bad, looked like he was dying. So we were, I was giving him some, some medication to, to help him through that talked with his wife and, you know, I was like, I think, I think he's actively dying. And, and so, and, and, and then, you know, I ended up going home for the evening. She, so, so she told me the next morning when I came in that what had happened, what had gone on all night was that he was, 
looking up into the corner and talking to somebody and sort of having a full on conversation with somebody. Um, and he, at one point, and, and at one point he grabbed her hand and said, see what I've done. See, I, I did this. And he would talk about other things that he had, I've got kids and, and would sort of come up with these things that, that he had done in his life, these good things. And, and then the next morning when I came in, he was, he was awake. He was like, what are, what are all these people doing here? What, how come, how, you know, how come my cousin is here? How come my family's here? What are you guys all, all doing here? <clears throat> so they sat with him for most of the day, you know, and then, and then he, he ended up um, passing later on that day into the, into the evening. He sort of slid off into, into more of a, a another kind of active dying period. Um, and so for me, what I, you know, it brought such closure for his wife, his wife and I, both, we had a conversation about this. I mean, I think we both had the idea that what was happening was that he was, um, I don't know, telling whatever powers that be sort of the, here are the good things, here are the reasons maybe why, um, why not, not everything in his life was bad or, or why he might deserve kind of, uh, not to go to hell, I guess, but it, but it brought, you know, a, a couple of reasons that sticks out to me is one, it brought such closer, closure to his wife. She was able to feel like, um, like things were going to be okay. He, he, he felt okay. I mean, after like, so, so, so he came back in this lucid period, was able to enjoy his time with his people and then, and then was not afraid to sort of then let go and, and, and move on. Um, and for me as somebody who sort of witnesses, witnesses something like that, I mean, it, it's just what, what an awesome, um, you know, awesome story of, uh, of, of finding wholeness at the, at the end of life, I think. So that's, that's probably my favorite end of life story. Oh, and integrating these disparate experiences in life from war to creating a family and, and sort of integrating war's place in his life with his Mm -hmm. Vietnam service. And then that his life didn't, stop there and his um, contribution to the world didn't stop there that he had all right. these other these other aspects of his life that he could put into one whole picture yeah uh, that's a really beautiful story and that his wife got to see that journey and have a sense and he had some peace and she had some peace in the end with it that's lovely yeah 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 that's my that's um, my favorite one that stands out to you yeah um well, so, so what is, tell, tell us about what you do on a day to day. Like what, what is a, what is a palliative physician? Yeah. What do you do? Yeah. Um, so palliative care, kind of the broad definition of what palliative care is, is care that is aimed at trying to alleviate suffering, specifically the suffering that comes with having a, um, chronic life limiting or life threatening illness. And we often talk about people suffering, you know, suffering isn't just physical, although there's that as well, but, but suffering also happens, um, in a, in a spiritual plane. It also happens social in a social plane. Um, and it happens kind of to our, to our emotional, um, psyche, I guess as well. And so, so palliative care is really about trying to address suffering on all of those levels. So, 
um, my day-to-day work is is usually working with people who have some form of chronic illness, and that could be anything from cancer to you know heart disease or um, bad lung disease. Um, we and and I even work with people who don't have uh, an end-of-life diagnosis, but have a, a diagnosis that's like, like head and neck cancer, for instance, is something that's really well treated, and we've got good. Um, ways to even cure head and neck cancer, um, but but the treatment often carries with it so much so much symptomatology, and it and it really affects um, people's ability to lead their normal lives and changes the way people lead their normal lives. And so, um, so I'll I'll meet with those folks and their family and um, try to figure out ways try to figure out where suffering is happening and try to figure out ways to mitigate that, whether that's through medications or um, maybe maybe talking to a palliative care psychologist or maybe talking to our social worker or finding other resources um, or or just just hearing kind of what you know ha- having somebody tell me what's going on can sometimes I think be be therapeutic for people too so um, that's a lot of what my daily daily work is with palliative care what's the difference between palliative care and hospice um, so you know, both both are. I guess I'll answer that question by talking about their similarities. Um, palliative care and hospice both focus on quality of life rather than um, rather than disease management or or changing the course of a disease, and both func- uh, both focus on function and quality of function and how people are able to to live their life. Hospice is really something that's reserved for folks who. Um, who are in their last six months of life and, and the, and I mean, doctors are really bad at figuring out if you're in your last six months of life or not. So we've got certain things that we, that we kind of look at. Um, hospice, I I often tell people it's reserved for periods of time where we don't think that any of the medicines that we're using can change the course of the disease. So either the medicine's not helpful anymore or if people sort of feel like, gosh, this medicine is making things worse than, than it was, you know, before I started the medicine, um, that's really what hospice is reserved for. Palliative care can happen at any point in a disease course. I mean, any, at any point really from diagnosis um, onward. And, and what we normally say is that people, you know, probably need less palliative care and less focus, there's less suffering at the beginning of a, an illness than there is kind of at the end of an illness oftentimes. And so what people need from palliative care might increase with time um, to a point where hospice is sort of maximal palliative care, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a nice way of putting it. Um, I was thinking about my favorite end of life story. I trained in hospice at the Palo Alto VA and um, I remember I was bedside with a, a patient and his um, extended family came. I, so not people who he saw regularly, not people who had been um, with him on the unit regularly. And um, I went in the room um, just to introduce myself and to um, see how the patient was doing. He's laying in his bed and he was nonverbal. He was sort of um, in an active dying stage or he had sort of... Um, kind of gruffly kind of crackly breathing and um uh not responding to any um conversation his eyes were closed he looked like he was sleeping and um i was holding his hand but he had a firm grip so his family was 
sitting down and I was in talking with the family and him and kind of orienting them to how to engage with the person who's dying. And so I'm holding, standing there and holding his hand and they're telling me stories about him and I'm telling um, them, oh, tell me about your loved one. Like, tell me, tell me what your favorite memories are so he can hear you and I can hear you. And, um, and so they are. And at one point his hand is warm and it's, um, I have small hands. I'm a petite person. His hand was like big and it enveloped my hand and it felt so good. And then, but at one point I put his hand back, um, on to rest on his body and, um, was going to go. And, um, I was asking, and the family was asking, should we hold his hand? And as, um, as I was going to go, he reached his hand back over to grab my hand and (laughs) held it again. And I was just like, Oh my gosh, if there if if there is any question if there is a person still yeah, inside still in there. Yeah, when the person is um dying and not able to respond, mm-hmm. if there is any question that has just been answered for me. And and then I took his hand and put it in his family member's hand so that they could have time because I'm not his fa- I mean, in those moments because they're so intimate, I feel like he is my family. But mm-hmm. um but technically I am not, and I want his family to have time with him. So then I put his hand in his family's, his, whoever that person was to him in her hand and, um, and just kind of held it there <laughs> to kind of orient his hand to hers. And then I, you know, said goodbye and left. And it was just such a powerfully intimate experience that this person who's actively dying knows the meaning of connection like like what you were saying in that storm and that at some in some level he's um wanting to connect and have um contact and humanity and um warmth and mm-hmm. um and it was a it was just a beautiful moment that will last forever for me and hopefully for his family that they get that opportunity with him too yeah. Uh, I think even at the mo I don't even know if I remember this right, but in, in my mind, I'm thinking, I wonder if at that moment we were even talking if he could understand or hear us because families often have that question bedside. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and maybe that's just something I'm making up now, but, and if that was a question in their mind, I hope that was answered then too. And, right. Um, it's just these end of life moments are so powerful and they can be so, um, simple, like hand holding mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and like incredibly powerful. It's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of, a lot of meaning sort of wrapped up in a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that we do. Let's go back for a second. So how does a person get designated from palliative to hospice? So I know there's their six month mark, but to qualify for hospice care, do two physicians have to agree that the person is um, has a prognosis no, of death? Was, no, not, not really. Um, the way that it works. So Medicare ho- hospice is really a Medicare benefit and that's where it comes from. Um, and, so, and, and Medicare has sort of done the most research on hospice and everything. So Medicare has guidelines for kind of what, um, what qualifies people for hospice. And so that's different based on different diseases. So for instance, for heart disease, um, it it's it's sort of intolerable symptoms, and a patient is either not a candidate for um, advanced therapies like a heart transplant or an LVAD, or patient is 
optimally managed on all of the medication that they have and, and kind of can't and still have symptoms despite all of that um, optimal, optimal management. So those, those things have been associated with a six-month survival you know, in, in all of the Medicare da- data. And so what normally happens is, let's say a patient is hospital or a patient is seeing their primary care doctor, that, that the doctor who's taking care of the patient in the hospital or the primary care doctor can make a referral to hospice um, after, you know, discussing it with the family or whatnot. And then what hospice will do, hospice will look at kind of all the characteristics of the person and look at kind of the medical evidence and say, yes, this meets criteria or no, this doesn't meet criteria. A lot of times what hospice will do as well is they'll, you know, they might be, they might sort of be iffy about, about whether or not the patient meets hospice criteria, but they'll admit the patient to hospice and kind of see what happens over the next, you know, 60 to 90 days. Does the patient sort of stabilize? Does the patient get better? Then those things would, would mean that, you know, they're not, not at end of life. But if the patient kind of continues to deteriorate and they're seeing, seeing sort of worsening function, worsen, worsening symptoms, um, then, then they usually keep the patient on hospice. I've had people, I've had, I've had people graduate from hospice. I mean, I, I had, a, <laughs> I, had a, I had a guy who had um, metastatic colon cancer for, and he had been on hospice for two years, um, was not getting any treatment. But, and, and, uh, and they said, they said, sorry, they sent him back to me and they said, I mean, he's not, he's not declining. He's just kind of plugging along. Um, and so, you know, I mean, who know who knows? I always I always say I'm not in charge, right? <laughs> yeah, there are bigger powers at play. That's right, exactly. Um, now, now there is some question about does the does a person have to be DNR to be eligible for hospice, or can they stay full code? They can stay full full code. So being, uh, yeah, having sort of agreeing to to a natural death or agreeing to not be resuscitated is not a is not a strict requirement for being part of hospice and and people have different i mean you know i I think sometimes people we talk about this a lot in palliative care so sometimes people um, we see a lot of resuscitations on v um where where people get cpr and then kind of you know come back to come back to full function and full life and so there's i think there can be a lot of misunderstanding about what actually happens in CPR. And so, so, you know, we, we might, we might live more with a Hollywood reality than, than sort of being able to see, see what it's really like. I also think sometimes people, um, sometimes people are like, gosh, why wouldn't I want that, that last chance or why wouldn't, or, or maybe I need my family to see that people are doing everything for me or whatever. There's lots of reasons why people might elect to, um, not to not allow natural death. Um, lots, lots of reasons why people might say, no, I want the paramedics to come in and do CPR. I think sometimes what happens is, um, you know, if somebody's, if somebody's, so sometimes I'll ask people, do you envision dying at home surrounded by, you know, sort of your stuff and people that you love? Um, and if so, then, you know, maybe hospice is, is for you. On the other hand, if you if you really do envision dying 
in a hospital ICU with somebody, you know, doing CPR on you, and that's what you envision, then maybe hospice isn't for you because hospice is something that's designed to keep people out of the hospital. And so if you're going back into the hospital, you know, for, um, for, for any attempts to change things, even if those things can't be changed, then, then, you know, then the, your doctors might decide that hospice is probably not the best thing for you. Mm-hmm. It just depends on, just depends on what people envision and what people's goals are. We talk about that a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you notice families tend to struggle with the most when it comes to end of life uh, illness, um, end of life care? Yeah. I mean, I think so. It, I, it's probably a minor, minor thing, but I think the thing that people struggle the most with is um, feeding and food and eating, you know, so the, the natural pathway for all of us is going to, is going to, I mean, unless, unless we have something catastrophic happen, you know, the natural pathway for disease to, to take over our bodies is that we, we just don't have a desire to eat. It's like when you have the flu, you're not, you're not thinking like, what's the next thing I'm going to eat? Cause you just feel so crappy the entire time that, that you don't eat. Right. And so that's, that's essentially what happens when people have lung disease or heart disease or cancer is that they don't, at some point, they don't want to take in food, A, and then B, it doesn't matter what they take in, they're still going to lose weight and, and kind of have and, and not get enough nutrition. And that's just because they're sick. Um, but, but, but for all of us, food is how we, um, food is how we show people that we love them. Food is how we care for people. We we have parties, we put food on the table. We have guests over, we put food on the table. We all get get together for Thanksgiving and for Christmas dinner and Easter dinner and, uh, and Passover. And, you know, so, so all of those, all of those ways that we use food to show people that we love each other, people want to do that at end of life, right? Like that's, that's what people, why, why isn't he eating? I make him his favorite foods and he doesn't want to eat it or he'll say, you know? Um, and so that, that, I mean, that, that can be a real struggle, right? When you want to do something for somebody to show them that you love them. And so you make their favorite food and they, that they've loved for 30 to 50 years and then they don't eat it anymore. Um, that's, that's really hard to take like Mm -hmm. my cooking or like what, you know, what is it? Um, and so I think people, I think people struggle a lot with that. And I, I guess I would just say it's, it's natural. It's natural for people to, um, I, I once heard, I once heard somebody say, you know, as people are dying, they, they become less interested in the things of this world and more interested in the, in the next world. And so it's all, all of that is based on what you think about is coming afterward. Right. But, um, you know, that made a lot of sense to me. The, the person said, look, people don't talk as much, they're sleeping more and then they're not eating. And, and all of that is because whatever's, whatever work is happening in their body, it's about the next place they're going to. It's not about trying to keep people here. And that's true. You know, when we sleep, when we eat, it's about us trying to, trying to stay here, trying to participate in, in the stuff that's, that's here. So, mm-hmm. um, what do you notice people who are dying tend to struggle with the most? Um, I think, you know, I'll say people who are actively dying. I think I, I don't know what they struggle with because I don't know, I don't know what's happening in there most of the time. Um, so we try to, 
we try to treat the symptoms that we think we're seeing and, and hopefully, hopefully they're not struggling with any of that stuff. But I, I think people who are kind of like before you get to an actively dying place, I think people struggle a lot with um, doing what feels right to their, to their family. I just, just took care of a, a gentleman who, um, you know, whose family was basically like they, they had asked for, he had, he had very advanced cancer and his family said, you know, can we get a second opinion? And I said, well, sure, you can do that. And I said, I'm going to recommend to you that, that, you know, the reality is probably that there's not going to be a second opinion available for him just because of how sick he is. But yes, if you want to do that, that's fine. And I sort of gave them some, some options and talked with them about how that, what that might look like. Um, and so they said, you know, at the end of the meeting, they sort of looked at him and they said, well, we, we want to do whatever you want to do. You know, we're, we don't really want you to be an experiment of any sort, but we want, we want you to do what you want to do. And he, for his part, was like, I can't, I can't handle the sadness that, the, you know, the tears that are coming from my mom and the tears that are coming from my son. I want to, I want to live and I want to, we're going to, you know, to get a second opinion. And then privately, <laughs> privately, you know, he would say he just wanted to go, wanted to go home with hospice. And his, his family was, they came up to me after the meeting. They, was, they were like, I, I think he just doesn't get it. I think he just doesn't see. And I said, you know, I think really he's trying to protect you and you're trying to protect him. And, and that's what you both are doing. And it's, and it's, and while you're trying to be honest with each other, that's, that's kind of what's happening here. So I think that's, that's the struggle that I see a lot of times is that people want to, people want to do what their loved one, everybody's trying to be deferent, right? The, mm -hmm. the person who's dying is trying to be deferent to, to their family and the family's trying to be deferent and people end up not being, I mean, I think the other problem is that sort of in our culture, we talk around death a lot. We don't, we don't, you know, we don't say the word, we don't um, talk about well, what are your dying plans or your dying plans. So we talk around it a lot. And I think that happens for, for families who are confronting it as well. There's a lot of talking around it. Um, you know, like, like the whole question, what do you want to do? What do you mean? What do you want to do? There is no, what you want to do. You're dying. Um, so, so, so I, and I think people are probably not as honest with, with each other and with themselves as they, as they could be. And that that leads to um, people struggling with, with sort of what to, what next steps to take and where do we go from here? Yeah. And the, and the, um, I think in the, in the mindset of it being a gift, but then it creates a struggle. Um, as you were talking about that and my experience in hospice and working with families at end of life is this, uh, the gift of the Magi story mm. by O. Henry, where there's a couple and um, the, the female member of the relationship has long, beautiful hair and, um, the male member of the relationship has his grandfather's watch or something, some special watch, but the battery on the watch is dead. And, um, and, and he's lamenting the loss of this watch because of it's not working because the battery's dead or some, some pieces missing. And, um, and she, she says, okay, well, there's an important, maybe it's Christmas. I don't remember. Uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to cut my hair and sell it to get this piece for the watch. And then he says, well, I love her so much. 
and I love her beautiful long hair, that I am going to um, sell my watch to buy a beautiful clip for her hair. So then it comes time like to see each other for Christmas or whatever it is. And they present their gifts and she has no more hair. She has no hair for the clip <laughs> and he has no watch for the, for the battery. And they, all they have is their love for each other. Right. And they're, they're demonstrating their love in these really profound ways, but then they're missing this key ingredient, which is um, like the importance of the, the connection and the time together. And that it, so often when I hear these stories, like you're describing from, from your work in palliative care, where the person who's dying may have the wish just simply to die in peace, surrounded by his family, without a lot of uh, medical drama happening around him and or her. And the family's like, well, we want, we want our loved one to have this, this life and we want to keep them, um, like, go and do a last wish trip or something and keep them going and help them see their grandchildren and... Like, and so how do we do that? And they're, they're both having their own narratives. And so they're essentially cutting their hair and selling their watch. And then they never get the conversation. That's like the healthy end of life conversation of how can we um, do this as a family peacefully, honestly, how do we talk about these things? And, um, and because all that's left really is their love for each other. They're, they're yeah. not going to have of course the hair is going to be gone and the watch will be gone and all they have is each other. And so how do you like maximize that? Right. And, in, in these conversations, I don't yeah, know. It, I don't know. If, no, I mean, that's, that's a great, that, that's great. I mean, I think the idea that people have different narratives of, of like what's happening and what they're doing is, uh, is, is totally, totally spot on. And I see that you know, all the time. And sometimes it's okay. And it, and it works and it works and it works out. And then sometimes people are just, you know, totally, totally at odds. Think about all of the dysfunctional ways that we love each other, you know, when everything's okay. There's, there's lots of, you you know, uh, somebody, somebody nagging too much this or somebody, you know, whatever, right? Like all of the ways that we, um, (laughs) <laughs> that we are not perfect. And then, and then that stuff comes out, you know, a hundredfold, um, when, when there's a crisis. And so, yeah, you just, we're not, we're not used to being honest about our emotions with people. We're not, e- even the people that are really close to us, you know, we're not used to having, um, not used to having really frank conversations with each other and certainly not with, you know, who has frank conversations with their kids, right? Like, like, <laughs> you know, we try to avoid those things. So, so um, it, it just, yeah. You, and you can have a lifetime of like having, having made it through a lifetime of small dysfunctions or whatever, right. That, that we all have. And then, and then it comes time for this huge monumentous thing, this huge piece of crisis for everybody. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, sometimes people just can't, um, can't navigate that, but you're right. Then are left with sort of this connection with each other. Hopefully, so, or yeah, or yeah, withdraw right. or all sorts of variability in between. Yeah, we are complex creatures, I guess. And you know, the other piece is that um, working with families with severe and terminal or chronic and terminal illness. Um, you know, the quality of our relationship before the illness strikes kind of influences how our relationship and the journey will go after 
terminal illness is um, identified. And so it can, and it could go in so many directions. And so um, it's, I think the end of life journey starts at birth because we're, we're relying on, (laughs) (laughs) but we have to rely on our relationships to get us through life and then get us through the dying process. And however that attachment goes through life kind of influences our experience at the end of life. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I I digress. Um, Oh, can you talk about, uh, let me, let me not be so chipper when I say this. Hold on one second. (laughs) Can you, um, can you describe the active dying process? You mentioned active dying. Yeah. Um, So when people are actively dying, they kind of, you know, I made the mistake of sort of describing this once to somebody as, as almost like falling asleep. And, uh, and he wouldn't, he like, didn't, he didn't want to go to sleep, you know, for, for months after that. But, but, it, but, you know, the, the final sort of common pathway for death when somebody has um, a chronic illness is that organs start to shut down. And as organs start to shut down, whether that's your heart or your lungs, you know, one of the major, two of the major organs that start to shut down are your kidneys. And those, the kidneys are super sensitive to kind of everything that's happening in the rest of the body. And so kidneys shutting down and liver shutting down, those are the things that filter toxins from our body. Once those start to shut down, toxins start to accumulate. And as toxins start to accumulate, we um, get more confused. And so there might be a period of confusion where people are actually kind of a little bit, a little bit with it and confused. And I think that can be scary for loved ones. And, it, and I think it's actually scary for patients a lot of times, a lot of times as well. Um, after that, can, as that confusion, I think gets, gets worse, people, or sometimes people don't even go through a period of, of extreme sort of awake confusion. But as people go through that, they get to a, a space where um, whatever's happening mentally, we can't, we can't really see what, what that is. So they look like, for all intents and purposes, like they're in a, in a coma, I guess would be the, the best way to say that, you know, hard, really hard to arouse not participating in conversation, you might be able to get like a, like a moan if you ask something specific to the person, um, but just really not able to tell us kind of what's going on with them. Um, people, sometimes you'll see people who might have some diff- some sort of struggling to breathe. And so we, we always look at sort of whether the nostrils are flaring or whether people look like they're like they are you know their brow brow is furrowed or whatnot those are those are signs that people might be uncomfortable um more often than not people are pretty you know pretty pretty calm um in the in the later sort of stages of that and so i would say that that's anywhere that could be anywhere from you know hours to you know, 12 hours to, to three days before somebody actually kind of, kind of dies. Um, I think as the dying process goes on, people, people can't swallow. So you get the pooling of, of secretions sort of in the back of the throat. And, you know, I think people commonly refer to that as the death rattle or hear that. And so you, I mean, you can certainly hear, um, 
you know, gurgling in the back of the throat. We don't think that's painful for people. We don't think it's distressing. Um, we don't see people with sort of furrowed brows kind of trying to do something about this gurgling. Um, I think it bothers families a lot. It's really, it can be really loud and it can be really sort of distressing to hear your loved one going through that. Um, and then the cardinal sign of, um, of the thing that I always look for when I, when I'm trying to figure out sort of what the trajectory is for somebody, how far away from death do we, do we think this person is when people stop urinating? So, um, less than a hundred CCs or a hundred ML of urine in a 12 hour period suggests that the next, that death is going to come within the next 12 hours. Um, so that's so. So people are people are pretty out of it. I I don't think I've ever seen anybody be alert, you know, and and sort of so, so people can't have a conversation. I and I think maybe sometimes people want want something like that to happen, but it, but people you know wouldn't be able to say goodbye. I love you, and you can have the black car, or you have my wallet. You know, those, those things. Um, kind of can't happen during during an active dying process. Mm-hmm. And the majority of people have an active dying process if they die from illness. Yeah, from right, from natural causes or, or illness. And sometimes I mean I would say sometimes that can be that whole process can be it can be fast or slow depending on on what's going on. So if if it's an infection for instance that is causing this this shutdown of organs, that can be pretty rapid. I mean, we can mm-hmm. be talking um, a matter of, of several hours and that, that whole process kind of gets, gets sped up. Um, if, if it's the heart failing, you know, it could be anywhere from hours to hours to days. Um, if it, if it's maybe something more like the liver having shut down from sort of longstanding liver disease, that might, that might be a little bit longer. Um, so it just, it just sort of depends on, on what, sort of where people were at before they started the dying process and, and, and kind of how bad, um, how bad, whatever the, the final insult really is to their, to their body. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What tips would you give to families who are starting the end of life process? I think, um, so I'll, I'll say a couple of things. I think, First, knowing know that that dying is a is a process. Um, it's not, you know, I don't think that dying is a moment. Even I don't. We we talk about kind of like time of death, and it's this one specific mm-hmm. moment in time. Um, and I don't I don't really think that that's how that happens. I don't think that we can we can tell that. But I think so. I think the 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 shutdown of the body happens. Is, is happening over time and it's happening, you know, I, I, I joked that we're all dying, right? But, but we are like our shutdown is slowly, slowly happening over the course of time. And so when you know that you have a diagnosis, you're going to, you, you die in, in different ways, right? You might die to the, to the person that you were, or you might die to, um, you might, might die socially. You can no longer bowl or, or you might die, socially because you can't be a doctor anymore or, or whatnot. And so there's, there's all of these different, different processes that, that happen at, throughout the dying process. And so just sort of knowing that, that, that it's a process, it's not going to be a moment. 
um, is, is I think helpful and, and important. Mm-hmm. I think the other, the other tip that I would give people is, you know, really make space for honesty. And I, I don't, I hope that doesn't land in like a, you know, what is she talking about kind of way. I, I, I really think we all have different expectations for each other all the time, especially in a marriage, you know, or in a um, patient or parent child relationship or in sibling relationships. We have all these expectations based on what society tells us and what we have experienced from each other before. Um, and, and making, thinking about, at least thinking about making space for, you know, what would it look like if we were honest about what we needed from each other? If we were honest about what we wanted, if we were not, not sort of hung up on all the, all the expectations that we have for each other and focused on being honest, what, what might that look like? What might that bring? I think those are, um, those are a couple of tips that I would have. And then the third thing I would say is just, I mean, some people feel like they can trust their doctors. And so if you, if you have a, a relationship with a doctor where you feel that that's, that that's the case, you know, talk to your doctor about, about all of the concerns and all of the stuff that you're worried about. I think doctors a lot of times are pigeonholed into like, we're going to talk about blood pressure today. We're going to talk about your diabetes or, you know, whatever sort of the kind of key points. And, and sometimes you can go to a, you could have heart failure for two years and go to the doctor for two years and, and be getting worse all the time, but never have had a conversation about end of life, never have had a conversation about what that might look like, what options might be, you know, because each time you're just sort of going through the checklist of what, what might need to be, what might need to be talked about. And so if you have, um, if you have a doctor that you trust, I would, I would, talk about function and talk about the things that concern you about, about end of life and, and what are we dealing with and what's this going to look like and how do I get help and sort of all of that. Because the more planning that you can do up front when you're healthy and when you can do the running around that you need to do and um, getting things in order and all of that and, and thinking about your wishes, um, it's the, the earlier you can do that, the better. This isn't, this isn't stuff like oh, one day I'm going to decide oh, that's how I want to die, or oh, that's how I'm going to think about CPR, right? Those things require a lot of, a lot of thought. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so just giving the time and the space for that, I think, is, is from the outset is good. To allow some grace for the emotional preparation for all of that. Um, you're talking about this process of anticipatory grief and ambiguous loss of um, losing bits and pieces of yourself or of your loved one over time. And that ambiguous loss where the person is still there, but they're different or not the same. Um, And then this anticipatory grief where I'm preparing for the end emotionally Mm -hmm. and saying goodbye in bits and pieces over time. That if, if caregivers and us, if we're active, if we're in the dying process, if we take the time to do that, it actually to grieve in an anticipatory way or um, to experience the loss, even when it's ambiguous, like it's sort of gone, but it's still here um, when it's not clear. And if we allow ourselves the sort of space and grace to do that, it actually help, helps with the aftermath of, of when the person does 
die and is no longer physically here. And that what we know about caregivers who engage in the anticipatory loss process or anticipatory grief process, if they do it in a healthy way, they have a healthier outcome with grieving down the hmm. road. Um, and so that's actually, I think, an important part of the process for our human psyche and spirit is um, even though difficult to engage in the process of grieving even before the person is gone. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we're, um, there's, like, we're going to be here, you know, for a certain period of time, like, no matter what. That's, it's often what I tell people, like, yeah, you can't be the person that you were. You just, you can't because of memory loss or because of functional loss or whatever. Um, but you're, but you're still here. And so what the trick is, is to now figure out how do you, how do you be you mm-hmm. um, with this, with all of this newness, right? How do mm-hmm. you still, cause you're still you, but how do, how do you make that new you fit into the body that you have or the stuff that's going on for you? Yeah. And then it becomes um, a real family thing because the person might still see, yes, I'm myself, but the family then might be responding to the person. No, you're sick. We need to step in. And so then the whole system needs to adjust and start to look at the, um, uh, where the person is capable and where the person can be um, upheld and honored sort of valued where they can contribute there anything else you would like to share with people who are embarking on this end of life journey? Anything that um, stands out to you as important? I mean, I just you know we're all we're all gonna we're all gonna go through it, and um, and I think so. So obviously, I have the opportunity to think a lot about about all of this um, because I do it every day. But it, but it is a gift to. I know. Um, gosh, I hope that doesn't sound. Glib, but but it is a gift to know that dying is coming. I mean, if you consider, um, you know, like I had a friend whose whose dad died in a car accident, and and the trauma from that, right? The trauma from an unexpected death um, is 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 deep, and we get through it for sure. But like to think about what a blessing it is to know to know that you can spend time with the people that you love, you know, can arrange for meaningful time with the, with the people that you love, or you can, um, you know, say goodbye to the possessions that you have that you really love or, or see this one place one more time, whatever those things are. uh, That's, that is, that is a, a real gift. And, and it's a gift if we use it in a, use it in that way, right? If we don't look at it as something that we need to fight and battle and argue about and, uh, you know, and, and something that we need to ward off at all costs, but rather is a, is a gift that, that is bestowed on us for, for the opportunity to, to use it, um, appropriately, then, then I think, I don't know, maybe it'll go a little bit easier for all of us. I would like to think, um, it's going to be scary. It's going to be scary no matter what. Um, but having having somebody who sort of you know back to my dog, having somebody who non-judgmentally is just like, yep, I'm here with you too, looking at that same expanse. Um, I think I think I don't know, maybe that's a good thing. I really appreciate your time and um, contribution to the show, and then all the work that you do um, with our nation's veterans and um, with being with people at the end of their lives and, um, and with families at the end of their loved one's life. So I really 
I really applaud you for the work that you do and appreciate the care that you give. So thanks. Thanks for that yeah. and for being on our show today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It was, it was great to have the opportunity to, to have this chat. That's all for today. Now it's your turn. Join the movement to include older adults in conversations about mental health and wellness. It's simple. All you have to do is subscribe, leave a review, and share this episode with others so that they can be part of the conversation too. One last thing, a special thanks to Jasmine Joyner, our Psychology of Aging podcast intern, for all you do. Lots of love to you and your families. Bye for now. Lena, do you think aging is scary? No. No? Why not? Because it makes us happy. Aging makes us happy? Yes. I'm going to be bigger and taller.